what I found on Steve's desk. Oops. Thanks, Steve. It's all good, bro. Ruby Willis, where are you? <laughs> you especially get one because today is Ruby's last Sunday with us. Ruby's heading for her first first job, first 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 teaching job in Auckland. So Okay. Um, bless you, Ruby, uh, and we'll miss you. Um, Merge, your birthday next week. Oh, I didn't mention that to be <laughs> You can get sued because you had to wait so long. Well, seventy next year, that's probably a bit more scary. Who else's birthday? Anyone else's birthday or special thing they want to share? Oh, it was my wife's birthday! Yes! <laughs> Being created. God just can't help being created. 
he could have created a space just for us, um, like even just our planet or just our solar system, but instead he created a whole universe. And he didn't stop at atoms, he kept going, because he can't help being creative. The other point we also talked about was he did it for his glory. Now, we're going to need to get used to this terminology of what glory means, because I think for most of us modern-day Christians, we use glory in the sense of some sporting victory or, or some um, kind of glorification process. But the Greek word that Paul uses quite a lot is the word doxa or doxus, which actually means emanating light. If you know your Old Testament and uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle, it, there was the Shekinah glory of God above it, and it was this emanating light that showed the world his presence. So when he talked about his glory, it was more about revelation than glorification. He was revealing himself. He can't help but reveal himself. And last week we showed some uh, paintings and, you know, the masters, how they paint. And once you know it's the master, you can't help but see their input or their influence in everything. And it's the same with God when people realize that he's the master. You can't help but see God everywhere. And then the last point, which is the most important point, was because he loves us. That's why creation happened. I had a great conversation with one of our members this last week, and he was asking me, he goes, but, but God, I mean, he knew, but he wasn't, I mean, he didn't know that he was creating us. Like, I mean, when he started, maybe, we're just trying to get into the mind of God, you know. And I said, it's hard to kind of get this concept of God knowing or not knowing or what it is, but he's all knowing, so he would have known. Then how could he love us? I mean, how does that work? And I said, well, if you want to put it in earthly terms, when, when, when parents, when they get pregnant, they're already in love with a child, even if they haven't actually met them. Whether it's a boy or a girl, there's just inner love for it. And it's the same here with God and us. This love is really important. Because part of this love requires letting go, free will. We talked a little bit about Max Lucado's comment, the, the seed of choice that God put in all of us. And that is his ultimate gift of love, because ultimately to love, you need to let go. Which leads us to this week's sermon, which is the story of redemption. And it starts with this love. If there is love, there has to be redemption. If there is letting go, there has to be a rescue plan. If I were to put it into earthly terms, you know, basically this is divine intervention. This is a point in which God has to step in, much like a parent needs to sometimes step in and help the kid out who's made maybe a bad judgment or a bad mistake. That's in earthly terms, but this is more on a cosmic spiritual scale. That if there is this free will, ultimately, we're just going to stuff up. And so God put this plan in motion knowing that this is just the nature of letting go. That we're going to make bad decisions. And we made the ultimate bad decision. And so he put in the ultimate redemption plan in place. Now it's interesting for us Christians in particular. Um, salvation tends to be a, a response and then we move on from it. And we don't actually go back to it. Then we actually then begin to not focus on ourselves, we focus on those around us to save others. Whereas salvation is actually a, a work in progress within you, but because we're so um, 
what's the word, transactional, that we think, I'm saved, now we need to save the world. Right? Because it actually takes a focus off us, right? That's the interesting thing about that approach, is that we don't need to look inside of us, we need to keep focusing on those outside, because they're the ones that need to be saved. But actually salvation has very much to do, and the whole plan of redemption, with you. It's interesting how Paul addressed this in, in the book of Philippians. He wrote this, he said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, God never ever intended salvation and redemption in itself to be just a transaction, done and dusted, move on. It's actually quite intent on continuing the work within us. So as much as this morning's sermon is going to be about how I'm going to try and challenge you to share the doxus of Christ, the emanating light of Christ to the world, the challenge is also going to be where is Christ's doxus within you? Where is his emanating light within you? Because that in itself is the full story of redemption. One of the reasons why Christianity is falling apart at the moment in the world is because they just see two very, very different messages coming across. They see and hear our words, but then they hear and see our actions, and they don't match. So there's going to be a challenge this morning for all of us, not just to getting out, but also to be looking in. You ready for it? Fasten your seatbelts. We're going to be unpacking one particular chapter, most probably the most famous chapter in the book, especially that one verse that Richard read out to us earlier, John 3.16, which seems to pop up everywhere. You look at sporting events, especially in America, but, but now I'm noticing it even in South America and other places, that the placard goes up, John 3.16. We all know it. Most of us have it memorized. But I would argue most of us don't really know it the full extent of what that means. And I'm not sure many of us have actually grasped the context in which it was delivered. So if you've got your Bibles, I know you all rely on me to put it up there, but if you have them, even if it's on your phone, go ahead and open it up now. Get yourselves into this word, because I'm going to paraphrase as we go along. I'll be using the NIV up there. But I'd love for you guys to just open it up. Go to John chapter 3, and if you don't want to, that's fine. But if you've got it there, go for it. So the story begins from verse 1. It says that there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now this guy, Nicodemus, he's kind of a well-known character. He's part of the ruling party. So just think of him as a politician. I think we've had enough of those in the last 24 hours. But he's got some standing. In a small place like Jerusalem, everybody knows him. But it's not just the fact that he is a politician or a leader. He's well-renowned. Jesus, later on, refers to him as, you are Israel's teacher. It's akin to saying, you are the teacher, not a teacher. And that just goes to show how much standing this man has in the Jewish community. 
He's not just some other guy who's popping up. And it's interesting, he's popping around at night time. Now in our culture today, popping around at night time is normal because we're all so busy during the day, right? But in that culture, it's not normal. There is no normality of going out at night. Okay, it's not safe, and it's dark, it's not like there's electric lights everywhere that light up your path. He's coming in the dead of night to come and talk to Jesus. So that in itself raises a whole lot of questions. John is interesting as a gospel because he he is called twinning. He 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 does not just one story, he usually does two to kind of play off each other. In chapter two, there's the wedding in Cana, and then right after that there is the, the, the expelling of the of the temple. And they actually mirror each other. In this one, chapter three mirrors chapter four. Can anyone off the top of their heads remember what's in chapter four? Yes, thank you. It's the woman at the well. And the contrast, I'll, I'll break it down later on, is incredible. Almost purposeful in its way. But anyway, let's keep going on this track. We've got Nicodemus coming to Jesus, and he's got obviously some thoughts. You know, he's trying to kind of talk theology in a sense. He, he kind of lays out a statement just to say, hey, hey let's, let's break this down a little bit, huh? You've you got all these wonders and signs, and, and you are famous, and you're doing these things. It must be from God. And it's a great approach from a theologian who doesn't actually ask a question, but implies that there's a question within it. This is good theology. Anyone who goes to Bible college, the, the lecturer sometimes never asks the question. They make these statements, and they beg for you to respond to them, right? And this is what he's doing. He's just laying it out in front of him. He's saying, oh, and so he's trying to lead this conversation with Jesus. Obviously, he's been thinking through this. He's coming at night because he's most probably not wanting to be associated too openly of talking with Jesus. He's got some questions, and he wants to have a discussion with Jesus. And Jesus does something absolutely marvelous. He doesn't not just answer the question or address that point. He comes up with a whole different point altogether. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And this is an amazing twist because what it does is Nicodemus comes to Jesus and wants to lead a conversation. Jesus flips it around and now Nicodemus is being led in the conversation. It's marvelous what he does. Because all of a sudden Nicodemus is like, what? What are you talking about? Now, you don't know if it's cynicism here, like, yeah, right, or, you know, maybe a little bit of spark of hope. How can you be reborn? How, how does that work? Can people actually change? I don't know where he's at, but it does catch him off guard. It takes him completely by surprise. Now, this guy isn't just anybody. This guy is the teacher. This guy is the one who teaches. He's the one that's up the front on the platform teaching Choose, he's memorized at least the first five books of the Bible. And in his position, he's probably memorized all the prophets. He knows his stuff. Call him doctor, if you will. He knows what's going on, and here he is stumped. What is Jesus talking about? And then Jesus kind of breaks it down a little bit, and he says this, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, and of the Spirit. Now, uh, Greek doesn't normally have articles in it, so we don't know if it's just water and Spirit, or water and the Spirit, 
We're just assuming it is the spirit, which makes a bit more sense. And poor old Nicodemus is just, his mind's a little bit blown. He gets this part. He would get this part. He would understand what Jesus is referring to about water. Now, when we think of water, we think of baptism, obviously. But our baptism today is a little bit different than what Nicodemus would have understood. The baptism that was known in that day was the baptism of repentance. John the Baptist. Everybody was lining up, including the Pharisees, for John's baptism. And it was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of rededication to God. A baptism of saying, I've tried to go my own way, but I need to turn back to the God I love, the God I honor, the God I follow. And so it was this moment, and you, you would have gotten that. The water and the spirit, in fact, his response is, <laughs> is a, what? How, how does this work? I, I don't get it. And Jesus kind of digs into him a little bit. I thought you were the teacher. And he goes on and on. He goes, like, don't you get this? Like, like the spirit kind of moves and goes and... You sure you don't get this? Until he has to use a story from Israel's past to kind of spark the imagination in Nicodemus. And it's this story. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the sun must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And all of a sudden we've gone from water to snakes. Now, most of us, when we read John chapter 3, it's not a verse that will come to mind readily. We don't share that with people. You know, Jesus, he's just like that snake they lifted up in the desert. You remember that, right? Most people are going to look at you and go, what? What are you talking about? But this is the bridge for Nicodemus. This is where the most probably the aha moment happens for him. Because this verse is key to understanding everything that comes after it. Anyone know the story? Nope. There's a no snake over here. Anyone know the story of the snake? Some of us do. Numbers? That's a book everybody reads, right? Are there stories in the book of Numbers? <laughs> I thought it was just about Numbers. <laughs> numbers, chapter 21, verses 5 to 8. They travel from Mount Hall. This is the Israelites coming out of, of uh, Egypt. They're all together. They traveled along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. We detest this miserable food. I've had people tell me, I would love to taste manna. I usually take them to this verse. Let me tell you, the Israelites didn't like it. <laughs> they were not impressed with the food that they were getting. This manna from heaven. Okay, it was detestable to them. And they got miserable. And so the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit people, and many Israelites died. And that's just a great story in itself, isn't it? Now I've got to say another sermon on this one, but I won't. The, the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and guess what? The Lord said to him, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by the snake looked at the bronze snake, and they lived. 
Now, do you believe that this bronze snake makes another appearance in the Bible? Anyone know about that? No? At one point, hundreds of years later, Israel split two nations. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel's obliterated and gone. Judah's left. This one king comes to power. His name's Hezekiah. And he discovers the Torah again and the law. And he, he rallies his people. And, 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 you know, revival happens. And you know what he finds? He finds the snake. Two kings, 18.4. And he removed the high places of Hezekiah. And he smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses has made. For up until that time, the Israelites had been burning incest to him. Now, let me give you a picture. I don't have a photograph of that time. Sorry. For those of you who don't know, there were no mobile photos back then. But, does this picture remind you of anything? Remind you of anything? We even talked about it in Revelation. It's a snake on a staff. The Greeks, hundreds of years later, took this image and carved it for themselves. They called it the god Asclepius, and he was known as the healing god. He was known as the healing god. Today, um, our medical profession goes by that symbol as a profession that heals. Now, just think about that for a moment. Why is Jesus using this to explain to one of the foremost teachers of Israel what, he's, what point he's trying to get. Because the story of redemption, it leads us to water, it leads us to repentance. And the doxus, the spirit, the emanating light, it leads us to the cross. It leads us to the cross. The cross is a place of healing. Healing a breach between humans and God, their creator. Between the child and the parent. Between us who are loved and he who loves us. First and foremost, there is repentance. Acknowledgement that we can't do it. Acknowledgement that, you know, there's a reason why in churches, we don't ever seem to get past that first point. We do a lot of repentance, but there is never that emanating light that happens in people's lives. That changes them, that leads them to the cross. The doxus, the doxa of God. And it's interesting because John, when he opens up his gospel, he opens up with this. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When did Nicodemus go visit Jesus? It was at night. No, bit close. It was still night. It was at night, right? Nicodemus came at night. And Jesus challenged him. 
he uses this analogy of the snake and says this was healing and people turn to it because they were itching for healing and this snake for hundreds of years was still held in the temple and people still burnt incense to it because they were still looking for healing other cultures co-opted this uh this symbol and used it for their own purpose because people were itching, screaming, calling out for healing. Calling for healing. It's interesting in the story of redemption. It's just like the story of creation. Why did he come and redeem? Because he can. Why not leave us to our own devices? Because he can't. Why do you do it? For his glory? Because he can't help revealing himself to the ones he loves. Because he loves us. He loves us. Not many parents out there I know that would just willfully abandon their children. There's heartache involved. There's brokenness involved in that process. He loves us. And right now, as we've gone through 15 verses of John chapter 3, we now come to the crux of it. And it's actually not Jesus talking here. Jesus has finished his discussion with Nicodemus. That conversation's over. John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, now takes over. Just to highlight... The point that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved the world. Anyone know the Greek words for love? Anyone here who's done a little bit of learning here? There's three <laughs> words. Yeah, Merv, put your hands <laughs> You know, too? Well, the, the first one uh, is uh, Eros, right? You know these three? Philia is the second one. And the third one, everyone heard that one, Agape, right? My daughter wants to argue with me that there's more than three. Actually, no. In ancient Greek, there's only three. She says there's four or five, but we'll argue that later. Anyone know what they mean? So Eros is what? Can, you can almost imagine what Eros is, right? Anyone? They call it romantic love. Actually, it's not, but anyway. What about Philea? Brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Okay, well, what about Agape? Sacrificial love. Actually, let me give you the definitions. Eros is a love that takes. It's usually associated with physical love. Because when it comes to even sexual love in any way, it's an urge, a want. It's personal. It's about me. It drives us. It's a need. It takes. I'm not saying any of these are bad. I'm just saying this is how it comes across. Eros is a love that takes. Philia is a love that gives and takes. Right? Families. We give and take. Brotherly love. Sisterly love. Family love. Church love sometimes. It has to be our stuff sometimes. But anyway, 
is a love that gives and takes. Agape love is a love that gives. And the reason why it's associated with God as being love and why John uses the word agape, he's making it really clear. Rather than using the other two words, he's making it clear to everybody, this is a love that gives and only gives. I quoted last week from The Matrix, which, by the way, I think it was TV1 that had it on that night. Yes. That was awesome. Um, I quoted this, this quote from, it's remarkable how similar the pattern of love is to the pattern of insanity. And it is so true. The world cannot understand that you can just give. There's got to be something for me. Our capitalistic society means if I put this in, I expect this back. They get that, okay, maybe taking is not a good thing, but give and take is right. And God calls every one of his followers to give. Full stop. Let me ask you this. Where does forgiveness fit in there? Where, where do you think forgiveness fits in here? Agape. Which was, drives me nuts when, and I do it. I'm not, not driving anyone, it's not anyone else. I'm just as bad. But when it comes to forgiveness, I can forgive, but I can never forget. It's not a God thing. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> I'm not saying we're, anyone's got it right. But that's the challenge. As followers of this redemption plan, of this person who's died on the cross for our sins, Jesus Christ. We are called to be like him. He gave all, not expecting anything in return. We're called to be the same. It's the challenge of this story of redemption that as we go out and share the emanating life, the doxus of Christ to our community, which, by the way, the Shekinah glory of God couldn't help but shine out. And if Christ is within us, it can't help but shine out to everyone around us. And then there's this other word, the world. Cosmos in Greek. It's not the physical world. It's people. It's this place filled with people. You know, that word alone is revolutionary. Because for the Jew, there was no belief that God loved anyone outside of Israel. For them, they were the chosen people. The rest were excluded. And here, John pulls this word out, the world. He loved the world. Not Israel. Not any nation or race. He loved the world. And why I get a little titchy when I hear these prophecies, I shared them last week, about New Zealand and God has a plan for New Zealand. He has a plan for people. He doesn't see boundaries. He doesn't see political uh, factions. He doesn't see these things or, or billion-dollar walls. He sees people. In fact, I would argue it's not Hudson City Baptist Church. We're all churches. We're all God's people. It's the world. 
And we've got to start thinking the beatrice of the world right now is Nelson. Right? She's going out. For, for me, it's lower heart. In fact, I'll even narrow it to high street. But I've got to have this yearning for if I have this, <laughs> this emanating light of Christ within me, it's got to show to the world. It's got to go. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That serpent on the pole, I know we've got a negative image of the serpent, but in this case it's actually positive. This healing aspect, well, Christ has replaced that. He is, through the cross, the healer, the healer of the bridge. He heals our soul. got a whole lot more to say, and I don't even know if I should go any further. Man, this is our challenge this morning. This is, this is our challenge. I think sometimes we spend way too much time focusing outwardly, wanting to do what's out there rather than inwardly, and sometimes we focus too much inwardly and forget that we need to be looking outwardly. In fact, if the true emanating light, the doxus of Christ, lives within us, we can't help do both. We can't help be focused on our communities and people around us who are itching for healing. A healing that only Christ can give. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Let me tell you what born again doesn't mean. It's not knowledge. It's not um, behavior. It's not awareness. I, I was, I've read several commentaries and I've, I've pulled all these comments out of them. Um, being born again is not discovering some latent capacity within the human soul and fanning into flame. Being born again is not an overcoming a, a moral consciousness that is hidden by sedimentary layers of civilizations. Corruption and being born again is not inspiring aesthetic equalities that promote society in its finest forms. None of this. And that's why even with baptism classes, they don't work. I'll tell you why they don't work, because it's just knowledge. Coming to church on the Sundays doesn't just work, because that's just all about behavior. And even praying. I know a lot of people who pray. That's just about awareness. Being born again has nothing to do with you or me without spirit at all. Being born again is all about God's spirit. It is what I would call a foreign invasion, something that completely takes us over, that completely overwhelms us. When I stand around people who have come to Christ, the first thing I hear from them is, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I can't explain. This is not me. It's sabotage of the highest order as God's spirit takes us over and comes within us and burns within us. And all of a sudden, this revelation and the doxus of Christ hits us. Takes us. And good old Apollo and, 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 and 
in, in the New Testament, runs out and tells the world about it. He can't stop. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea, but he can't stop talking about it. And then Paul says, hey, let, let's help you a little bit here. Because maybe a little bit of knowledge will help you now that you've got God in you. <laughs> it's a foreign invasion. It takes us over. It, it, it smacks us in the chest. And we just look and go, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. Mark, Mark's not here, is he? I remember Mark when he came forward. He just looked at me and he goes, Rob, I don't know what's going on. I, something's going on. I don't know what it is. What is it? It's amazing how that foreign invasion hits us. Hits us. And for many of us, we forget that day. Life takes over. And and we go about our business. Go about doing our thing. A few years ago, I was at a conference. A few years ago, it was 20 years ago. And they were telling us how our lives should be. Christian conference. And they say, you know, God needs to be number one in your life. Then your family. Then the church and ministry. Then work. And then others. But the reality is, for us Christians, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about us. You know what number one actually normally is? Work. Because our lifestyle choices demand that work has to be number one. Our choices in life demand that it has to be number one. Even for me, and I'm the pastor of this church, if my girls are, you ask my girls, what, what does dad do most of, apart from lately Xbox, because that's where he gets lost. What else does he do the most? Work. And then a family, and then God, and then other things like hobbies and interests. And sometimes we actually swap the other with God because then we just kind of amalgamate more into one. And church and ministry is expendable. It's a thing that doesn't normally take priority. This is the way it should be. Number one should be God, church, and ministry. You cannot separate them. You can't separate church and ministry. This is what God wants for you. He wants his people to come together, and he wants you to do his work. One of the reasons why evangelism is not big in our churches anymore, because we just rely on other people to do it for us. We're too busy. Or we come up with a, the gift, which personally, I think, anyone that's got some good sales techniques has a gift. That's not the way evangelism was supposed to be. Family's always second. Work is third and whatever else is fourth. We come back to this verse in Philippians where Paul is challenging us. I've got other verses popping into my head now too. Remember your first love. Remember that first time you were invaded by the Spirit of the Lord. When he took you out. Remember that moment. Remember it. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember it? God so loved you 
that he enacted a redemption plan that called you to repentance, that brought him, and then in his final words, sent you out to be him to all those around you. I've, um, I've got some bowls up the front here with water. Um, I've got to let God do his spirit thing because I, I can't orchestrate that thing. But I can certainly hope to lead you guys to repentance so that you can allow God's spirit to come and talk to you to invade you once again. As I ask the music team to come up, um, I, I didn't tell them I was doing this because, yeah, I'm hopeless. But... Okay. All that giving. The challenge I want to lay at your feet this morning is this. Where is the doxus of Christ in you? Have you allowed that emanating light to burn? Believe me, I, I look in the mirror and I think it's a dim covered light at the moment. It's always a challenge. That's why church is so I don't want to leave a legacy to my kids that I was a hard worker. I want to leave a legacy that I was the one to serve in God's heart. And I can't deny that. To share that light to the world around you. Didn't we not all want that legacy? So the challenge for you this morning is to take a moment. These guys are going to sing and play the last song. While that song's going, if you feel you want to just come forward. As an act of repentance, you don't have to come forward. You can stay right where you are if you wish. But there are bowls of water. Just dip your hands in them. Give to God all that you are. And ask that His Spirit just will you, invade you, take you and rekindle that first love. For some of us here who have been Christians all our lives, other things may have taken that space. Because there is a world in need. And I can't drive you to go out there and share that love. You can only do it if that love is burning within you. Amen? Amen.